Have you ever sat down and thought that you were supposed to start a podcast? Have you ever wondered how you're going to do that and how that will work? Anchor.fm is the link where this podcast is recorded. It is so helpful, so easy to do. Now, come on, people. If I can do it, y'all can do it. I'm telling you what. So (laughs) go to anchor.fm, start your podcast, and follow what God is calling you to do. Hey guys, welcome to season 12 of the Anchor by the Sword podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am so appreciative and grateful and blessed for each person who listens for the first time or has been with us through now 12 seasons. So thank you for tuning in to listen and glean something from the freedom stories of the person featured in each episode. God bless and let's do this. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Anchor by the Sword podcast. I'm really excited to get a chance to speak with today's guest. Uh, She had a book come out just last week, and the audiobook is actually out now as well. So thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, can you introduce yourself? So uh, my name is Nagme Panahi. A lot of people might recognize me uh, as Nagme Abedini. That's when um, I guess my name became more uh, more of a household name because of then my husband Saeed Abedini was in prison in Iran and I started advocating for him. So I was on the news a lot. I met with uh, presidents. I met with Obama. I met with Trump uh, right around the time he was about to run. So um, at that time, there was a lot of coverage. And so a lot of people re- would recognize me as Nagme Abedini. My maiden name is Panahi. So yes. That's a quick explanation. <laughs> awesome. So I'm really excited to dive further into your story. So let's go ahead. Okay. October is domestic abuse month. And I have a book that has, comes out October 10th. And my story is uh, is not all about domestic abuse, but that's a part of it. And I think that's a big part of my spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say what, uh, before experiencing domestic abuse, I hadn't really been broken. <laughs> I was, you know, I grew up in a pretty good family. My dad really, inst- even though my dad was, um, is from the middle East and, um, was raised, born and raised Muslim. Uh, he really instilled a lot of confidence in me, in me as a woman, you know, and he would always say, you're like me, you're a businesswoman, you're, you're mine, you know, he would always encourage me and give me confidence. And so I grew up in a pretty healthy family, Muslim family, uh, came to America when I was nine. And then um, my brother had a vision of Jesus. And that's how we were converted from Islam to Christianity and became followers of Christ. My parents thought we're going to forget about Jesus because we were so young. Um, and they, uh, actually my dad was going to move us back to Iran. The reason we came from Iran to America was because there was an eight year war with Iraq and there was, um, like the war was actually in our country. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I would hear bombs and missiles. And so my dad, as it got really bad with chemical warfare, he brought us to America. And so when we became Christians, he actually was considering moving us back to Iran <clears throat> when someone, his brother, uh, who had just found a job in Idaho, recommended to him for for my dad to bring us to Idaho, thinking it's a secluded place. They're going to forget about Jesus. And so um, that's what happened. My parents brought us to Idaho and they kind of watched us 
to make sure we weren't mean, you know, communicating with Christians, going to church or reading a Bible. And it took about almost 10 years, um, uh, about eight years until my parents themselves became Christians. And that's Mm -hmm. an interesting journey on its own. But um, so I grew up in a pretty, um, I guess, normal household outside of that, my conversion and my parents anger over that. And in my 20s, you know, I went to college and then I felt called to go back to Iran. And that's where kind of the domestic abuse stuff started. I met a very charismatic man and he um, seemed to have a lot of things that I was attracted to, which was, for example, evangelism. I came out of Islam. I love to evangelize. And he seemed really charismatic and an evangelist. And so I was drawn to him. And um, but I hadn't really be, been really broken up to that point. I was in my 20s, <laughs> got married in Iran. Uh, we actually ended up leading one of the largest house church movements in Iran. And when God had me go to Iran, actually right after September 11, is when I didn't know when God really gave me the urge to go back. Um, uh, when we saw the devastation of September 11, I felt like God was saying, I'm going to change the Middle East by through the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know he was sending me right around the verge of a revival. And that's mm-hmm. where I got to see revival happen. I got to see <clears throat> thousands of Muslims become Christians. Mm-hmm. I got to be uh, involved in leading that caught leading those house church movements. And, um, I, you know, and the, quickly because of the um, even Iran right now is one of the fastest growing nations in the world with Christianity. The Iranian government considers Christians as a number one threat to their national security. So I became part of that. But uh, I was so, we were so busy with ministry that I didn't really uh, focus on what was happening in my personal life, even though I was dying inside. There was a lot of things that now looking back were red flags. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, early on in our dating, he started tearing my looks apart. Like you're so dark, you're so ugly. You need to do nose surgery. You need to do eyebrow surgery. You need to do this. And, and so I start really losing confidence in how I looked and my weight and I start piling up makeup. Um, he started questioning my friends and family, uh, really isolating me, telling me, you know, he was a charismatic leader and he would say i see when people have spiritual problems and your sister has a spiritual problem and your mom has issues and so he started isolating me so that i really was cut off from my friends and family and at that time most of them lived in america but i had some relatives in iran and you know i wouldn't talk to them much even over the phone and and just uh he started questioning my thoughts if i gave an opinion he would kind of really question it to a point where I started doubting my own thoughts and my own opinions. Um, he started questioning the way I dress. He's like, are you sure that's a good color? And so over time, he really dictated what I wore and what I ate, what my weight was, who I saw, who I didn't see. And I I didn't really see the abuse. It, it really about a year into our marriage is when the first beating happened. Mm-hmm. So I didn't see those as abuse, like the put downs, the isolations, any of that, but the house churches were growing quickly. So I didn't really focus too much on that. And I want to say, you know, there's so much stuff always happening in the Middle East and there's recent events mm-hmm. that have happened with Israel. And um, there's been earthquakes in Afghanistan you know, I, I want to say as Christians, um, because my, my story is of one of domestic abuse, but it's also of 
had a love for evangelism and mission. So that's also part of my story. And I still work in Afghanistan. There's I work with the underground church in Afghanistan and Iran. And I want to say as Christians, the way we fight those battles is through the gospel. When people are transformed by the love of God, mm-hmm. uh, they don't want to do things that hurt other people. And so that's why uh, the Taliban or the Iranian government really see Christianity as a threat because when people are converted, they no longer want to follow their uh, radical theology. So Mm-hmm. So that was my story. It was exciting. I was in a hard marriage, but I was also, it was very exciting because uh, I was in my twenties. Most of the house church members were in their twenties. There was a lot of 20 um, uh, some year olds, college students becoming Christian. And it was really exciting to be part of that movement and to be leading it. Within two years, we were leading house churches in about 33 cities. It was just, there were just college students were uh, coming to Tehran where we were at. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were going to their university, they were getting saved, and then we would train them, send them back with Bibles, and they would start churches where they would go um, to their cities. So within a couple of years, we had the 30 plus cities that had not had churches over a thousand years start, you know, have churches. So, Wow. Wow. What a story. Can we dive a little bit deeper into as the marriage progressed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was because of, of the house church movement, I didn't pay as much attention to how I was dying inside, even though I couldn't put, I couldn't understand what was going on. So I, I, I could tell something was off, but I wasn't too focused on it until we had to flee Iran because of persecution. And in 2005, we left Iran. Um, it was about a year after we were married. And we fled Iran because we were we kept getting arrested and it was actually endangering the house churches to be for us to associate with them. So we fled Iran and uh, we got to Dubai and that was the first beating. I was looking through my suitcase for my pajama. We It was like midnight in, in Dubai and I was pregnant and I was making a mess. And he said, you're making a mess. And I said, who cares? And that's when I got full on uh, like um, to the point of death. I had so many punches in my head and my stomach and my kicks and Saeed actually, um, his conversion stories that he had been trained by Hezbollah to attack Israel. So he was being trained as a terrorist. And so I didn't realize until that point, like how much power he had with his fists that he could actually take my life. And so uh, at that time I I was pregnant, I felt like, um, and coming from Middle East culture and the purity movement. I just didn't um, imagine going, having to go through divorce. Mm-hmm. And so I I thought this is it. I just need to like be very careful. And I was walking on eggshells. Mm-hmm. And so, so that was, uh, that was the beginning of a very difficult marriage. We came to America and I started noticing more and more. I was no longer doing house church and life was getting harder and harder. Said was going to clubs, partying, putting me down. I could see him chatting with girls and I didn't know what to do. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't until he was arrested in 2012, because um, after about four years in America, he started going back to Iran thinking, well, I don't do house church anymore. Things should have calmed down. So he was traveling to Iran starting in 2009. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, he got arrested. And that's when really... God used Saeed's imprisonment to set me free. As a lot mm-hmm. of people in domestic abuse know, it really sometimes takes separation mm-hmm. between you and your abuser for that fog to lift and for you 
to start seeing things that maybe you hadn't seen before. And, and when you're under that abuse, you, your mind is in a way being controlled. You're in a fog. You really, there's the good and then there's the bad. So it's hard to process what's happening, but really Saeed's imprisonment gave me that distance um, to be able to process um, and for the fog to lift. And it took three years for God just poured into me through his word, gave me confidence. I uh, found my identity in him that I'm the daughter of the king. And so Saeed saw that from prison. He could, because towards the end of his imprisonment, towards the last year of his imprisonment, he had a smartphone and he noticed that I was having confidence that it had taken eight years of our marriage to destroy. And he could tell there was confidence in me as the daughter of God. And he started getting very upset and saying, well, you're don't think you're anything special people. When you go speak, he, and he saw me meet with Obama and Trump and saw me speak between us at a, like a 30,000 person church, like mega churches and big events. And he said, you know, don't think people are clapping for you. People are clapping for me. Like, don't think you're anyone special. I'm the persecuted pastor that they're clapping for. And when I come out, I'm going to divorce you, sir. You're no longer Nagme Abedini. You're now Nagme Panahi. And so, um, and we'll see how much attention people are going to give you when you're no longer Nagme Abedini and no longer linked to my name. And so he just started being really cruel. And I couldn't understand why, because I was literally laying down my life to get him out of prison. My kids were four and five years old at that time. Mm -hmm. I missed from four to nine and 10. I missed those years. And so I missed, or eight or nine, I missed those toddler years because I was traveling. So I was literally laying down my life to get him out of prison. He had an eight year sentence. He came out after three and a half years. Mm -hmm. And so I just couldn't understand why he was so mean and so cruel at that time. I couldn't understand that he needed to crush my self-esteem again so he could control me. Mm -hmm. So in my confusion, I confessed to a pastor, I was speaking at his church in North Carolina. And I just told him everything, as you know, like being in a um, abusive marriage or a hard marriage, you don't air your dirty laundry, you mm -hmm. keep it a secret. I wouldn't even tell my parents a lot of the things because I was afraid, well, if we make up, my parents are still going to hate him. So you kind of keep everything in. And for the first time, I told this pastor everything. I couldn't make sense of why Saeed was so mean to me. And, and he diagnosed me. He said, you're an abused wife. Mm -hmm. And that's when everything made sense. I compare it to like a, a medical diagnosis where all these things are going wrong and you don't know what's going on and you take Tylenol or Advil and then someone's like, no, you actually have cancer. Mm -hmm. And then it makes sense, all the pains, all the symptoms. And then you realize like, I can't solve this by... Tylenol, I need to go through radiation and chemo. And so that's, that was a wake up call for me. Like, this is not a normal marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a marriage that needs to be dealt with uh, seriously. Mm -hmm. And so you filed for divorce. No, I filed, I was actually, I've been very afraid of divorce. Mm -hmm. um, to this day, it's, I don't know if I would have still filed for divorce. I filed for legal separation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, and I explained it more in my book, a lot of people don't understand it. Once I got out of prison, he threatened to divorce me and come and take the kids. And so I consulted with a lawyer and they said, if he can, he's their father, he can actually come and take the kids and there's nothing you can do. So in order to keep the kids in Idaho, you need to file for legal separation because everything freezes and they have to stay in the state. 
Mm-hmm. And so I filed for a legal separation until we could talk about our marriage and uh, his infidelity, many cheatings, which he had confessed to people like Franklin Graham, his beating, his other emotion abuse that is harder to see, emotional, psychological. So I wanted him to get help on abuse and his cheating and porn addiction. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, for the first three months, he didn't even he didn't want to talk to me because mm-hmm. the last conversation we had had when he was in prison, I told him, don't talk to me if you can't be nice to me. Yeah. So he stopped talking to me altogether. And three months after he got out, it took a court order for the judge to have him give me my his new, his new phone number so that we could communicate about the children's um, you know, custody stuff. So finally, there was some communication after three months of him getting out, but he was very angry at me. And uh, he actually was the one that filed for divorce. He, there had been a woman that he had been cheating on me with through in our house churches. He brought to America after he came to America, he brought her here and he, um, lived with her and he divorced me. And that was devastating. Mm. Um, in so many ways, I mean, people who've experienced cheating, understand it. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's the, there's that feeling sick feeling. And also that I felt I wasn't worth fighting for here. I'd fought to get him out of prison and he didn't even try to fight for our marriage. Mm -hmm. Uh, He just came and divorced me and moved on. And so, as I said, and earlier, that was the, uh, probably the best thing that happened to me spiritually. First, I was set free. (laughs) I didn't realize I needed it to be set free. I, uh, you know, and that helped me grow very close to God. And um, also find my definition in God, because in the process of Saeed divorcing me, I lost everything. I lost the support of the Christian community. I was accused of many things uh, that uh, me drawing boundaries or, you know, saying Saeed was an abuser. People said, oh, because you're cheating on him or, you know, which to this day, I haven't dated or been with anyone. It's been seven years since our divorce. And people accuse me of doing it for fame, you know, getting, you know, on trying to advocate for sight for fame, which is ridiculous again, because I waited six months before I even went to media. I mm-hmm. prayed and fasted for his release and going to media. I had no idea it was going to blow up. I was not going, it was a last ditch effort to get him out of prison mm-hmm. and put pressure on the Iranian government. So the Christian community abandoned me. I got accused of many things and really, I was stripped of being a wife. I no longer was a wife. I was stripped of being a pastor's wife. I got stripped of being ministry, uh, anything. And, and in that time, it was three years of really just crying and healing. Mm -hmm. And through that, God showed me you're mine. And that's all that matters. This is a, this is a title. No one can ever take from you. You know, a lot of times we go, you know, ministry, a kid, we really should have everything with an open hand because sometimes ministry or work or even a spouse or our children define us. And then when they're gone, you're like, who am I? You know, Uh, for me, it's, it's going to happen in a few years. I'll be an empty nester and I'm already preparing for that. Like I've been a mom for 18 years. Who am I? (laughs) Really? I think all of us, we need to go through those identity crises because we need to get back to, I am his child. And that's amazing. And that's more than enough. Mm-hmm. And that's what I discovered in my time of wilderness. I would say when um, it was, it was the most growing time in my Christian walk. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I discovered who I am and that no one can ever take that away from me. And his provision, like I had to quit my job when I was advocating for Saeed and I lost all of that. I lost the platforms, I lost the speaking and I really learned to depend on God and to really know him as my provider mm -hmm. and to really um, trust that he will provide for me and the kids. He was, he became my everything. And all of my identity got wrapped up in him. So that that time of um, the hardest time in my life, Saeed's imprisonment, ended up being actually uh, the road to my freedom. Mm -hmm. And the worst thing that I had thought at that point that had happened to me, again, was the divorce. I did not, I stayed in an abusive marriage because I was afraid of divorce. And Saeed knew I was afraid of him divorcing me because um I know divorce is hard in the Christian community, but it's even more of a taboo being from Middle East. Mm -hmm. And so I think I would like people to know that a lot of times the hardest thing in your life, uh, if you really give it to the Lord, you can see it used for good and for his glory. And that um, it really, he does really, he's a God of making beauty out of ashes. Ashes is like nothing is left of it. It's completely burned to the ground. Mm -hmm. There's no hope of anything. He makes something beautiful out of it. And if we can trust them with that and, and surrender our fears and anxieties, I literally, every fear and anxiety that I had, it came to, it really happened <laughs> and I was okay. And it was fine because we have Jesus and that's something the world can't take away from us. And that's something um, that we have as Christians that no one else has. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's going to be really encouraging to people because you're right. Divorce is not something that's looked well upon. It's getting better, but there's a stigma about it. And like you said, in your culture and everything, there is still a stigma, but to see that God was really there for you and that you truly felt him and that he never leaves any of us, no matter what. I think that's going to be so encouraging. So thank you for sharing all of your story and for being so vulnerable and sharing uh, what's happened to you and how you are on the other side now. The interesting title to your book. Yeah, I find it. I find it very <laughs> interesting <laughs> because a lot of people will say I survived or I thrived and all that kind of I'm stuff. I'm a survivor. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And the title of your book is I Didn't Survive. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that and where that came from. Yeah, the best way I was thinking, because I'm, I'm going to speak at a conference soon. And they also asked me, like, this is one of the questions we'll ask you. The best way I can explain is when a caterpillar goes into the cocoon, the caterpillar does not survive. That hard pressure of the cocoon transforms the caterpillar. It's it's now a butterfly. Mm -hmm. And so the old me didn't really survive. It's um, when I went through that pressure of suffering and struggling to, uh, it was really, it, it was really a struggle to be set free. I had to um, struggle a lot of things with God, a lot of the theology that was used to control and manipulate me to have me submit to things that was not God honoring. Mm -hmm. I had to really struggle with a lot of things that I had come to believe that was not even really true to the gospel mm -hmm. that I had thought when I had been married to Said, I was 30 pounds lighter. 
now I'm not like, but I get, I always thought I need to lose more weight. I need to, because I was in this um, wanting to please and also not feeling ever like I was good enough or pretty enough. And so now it's, he's set me free to be um, who I am and to accept who I am in him, my confidence, my, you know, my uh, uh, value in him. And so, yes, my old me didn't survive. And as the book says, you really, you can't drag your old self through that journey. Your old self has to die and you are really become a new creation not just like as when you get saved, but as your mind is being transformed by the word of God, you really become, and you, as you struggle through suffering in life, life is full of suffering. You really, the old you, the caterpillar dies in a way or is transformed mm-hmm. into a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's so true. That's uh, it definitely brings us an aspect to things and wording to things that most people don't like, mm-hmm. they'll say I'm a butterfly, but they don't acknowledge the fact that the caterpillar is dead like it's, yeah the caterpillar it's is no longer is no longer a caterpillar the caterpillar yes. turned into a butterfly right right so I love that I love how you um bring that to light so one of the things that I ask everybody when you were going through the times of when you were losing everything what verse or verses were your anchor I God gave me Hosea 2 verses 14 through 16, where it says, um, you know, uh, I will lure her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her there. You know, I will give her vineyards back and the valley of I'm just paraphrasing valley of despair will turn into a a gate like hope um, and talks about you will no longer call me master, but you will call me my husband. That was the verse he gave me as he called me into the built wilderness that uh, he said, I'm, I'm taking you to a quiet place. Mm-hmm. I'm taking you to a place where I will speak kindly and tenderly to you there. And I remember reading that and just crying um, because like being spoken to and kindness had not been in my life for years. And you will dance with me as you did in the time of your youth. Like just this, you're going to be set free to worship me and serve me like you did when you were in your twenties. Now you're in your forties. And also the verse that really I clung to was, um, I think it's, um, song of Solomon chapter six, verse three. Um, it says, you know, I am his and he is mine. It really processing what that, what, what that is, what does it mean to be his? Like when we get married, we become there. Like we change our last name, we get their stamp. And it's like, what does it mean to have his last name, his mark on me to be his, Mm -hmm. to belong to him? Who's the lover of my soul who laid down his life for me. And what does it mean for him to belong to me? He is mine and I am his. And so really for the three years, I really processed these verses and what it means and they tra- they transform knowing my identity in him and his role in my life who he is in my life is really what i clung to and really what changed me mm-hmm. amen such great verses i will definitely put those in the show notes for people to look up now you've talked a little bit about this you're you've actually talked quite a bit about it but how have you seen god blow things open for you and help you in this new work as author and all of the things. Well, um, it's really scary um, to put everything out there. My book is very intimate. Mm-hmm. It's uh, actually my mom has been reading it, and I'm like, some of the areas where um, I meet Said and he crosses sexual boundaries, and 
uh, I get kind of attached. And also a lot of my struggles that I didn't share with anyone, it's in the book. And the moment it was published, I was like, oh no, (laughs) I didn't realize how many people would read it and how many people would probably have comments. Uh, So there was a scary, anxious moment there, but I'm thankful that it's out there. Um, Mm -hmm. People will know this, uh, my story. It's not just, like I said, a story of abuse. It's um, forsaking all to follow Christ and what it means as, you know, I was born and raised for the first nine years in Iran, but I was in America for 37 years of my life. And, um, you know, I went back and forth as a missionary, but so even in this culture, a lot of times I, I work with the persecuted church. You're like, you, uh, you're like, well, we don't go through the same things, but in this culture, we go through a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. We do. There's a lot of uh, ways that God wants is wants us for himself. And what does it mean to cling to Jesus and to forsake all for him, <clears throat> be loyal to him above all. And I think that's, that's a big part of the message, you know, is I hope that people take away from it is what does it mean as to cling to Jesus through the storms of life and to come out and really what it means to follow him, which is to forsake all, to be willing to let go of everything. Mm -hmm. And there's true freedom in that. A lot of times we hold on to our things um, and we look to material things or politics or whatever to save us. And in a lot of ways, God doesn't allow us to get our, our comfort from those things. And my dad passed away of COVID in 2020. When he passed, I realized I was getting a lot of my security from him because he would always step in and provide financially for me when I was like struggling. That was taken away from me. And I was like, I did not realize how much I depended on him. And so in a lot of ways, I hope my book um, helps us in our journey as Christians to know what it means to really be a disciple, to forsake all and to be willing to forsake all and not be afraid of letting go. But that's a step of faith as you look to him and you're like, I'm letting go. And now I'm like clinging to you. I don't think I'm special. Every one of us will see God use us in the most incredible ways as we take steps of faith and really trust in him and not in material things or in people. And, And so I think that's the call of God to us here in the West. Uh, is in in a lot of ways, the persecuted church has lost everything. The moment they become Christian, they lose their, you know, they can't have a, find a good job. They can't go to school. They lose their property. They lose their life. They get arrested. And so they're clinging to God. They're desperate for God. And they're seeing a powerful move of the Holy spirit. They're seeing revival Mm -hmm. because one thing I know of God, he cannot resist, um, brokenness he cannot resist humility he cannot resist his people crying out for him mm-hmm. he will step in this is one area we see in the book of judges anytime his people cried out he stepped in mm-hmm. and so he has such a tender heart and so um we experience experience in the west christianity in a different way the persecuted church has lost everything they're desperate for god to even protect them protect their life we are clinging to things that's giving us anxiety. And we're saying, but if, you know, if the government would do this, and if I had this much money, if I had this much saving in my retirement, so we're clinging to all these things. And God is saying, trust me, like the same way the persecuted is trusting me, persecuted church, like to really let go and say, I trust you. 
I'm mm-hmm. not going to let fear take over. And uh, for me in abuse, there was a lot of fears that was controlling me. The only mm-hmm. fear that's supposed to control us is reverence for God. And so when we actually let go, like I was kind of forced to let go of things, not willing, um, then we actually, there's so much comfort and freedom and we can see the move of God in our nation when we're desperate for him. You know, God only is looking for a handful of people that are desperate for him and are willing to let go of things they're trusting in and are willing to say, Jesus, like one of the 12, I will forsake my fishing, like whatever it takes, I want to follow you. And to really see him provide, to see him, you know, when I went to Iran as a 20 some year old, to see revival with your, with my own eyes, to be at the forefront of revival. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think the persecuted church in Iran and China are, are necessarily special. It's that they're desperate. And I just pray that we can understand that and let go of our comforts and become desperate for God and really see him move in our land. Amen. Amen to all of that. What a great way to end our episode today. Nagmi, where can people find you? Well, I'm on social media. I'm on um, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. And they can just look up Nagmi Panahi. Also, there's a website, nagmipanahi.com that kind of explains about the work in the Middle East as well and the persecuted church, which my heart is very close to. Um, again, I, I believe that a lot of things in the Middle East are solved through the gospel mm-hmm. and getting the gospel to those regions that have not heard it yet. So yeah, nagmipanahi.com, my social media. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And I know people will be encouraged and uh, changed because of what you've been through. So thank you for sharing today. Thank you. Absolutely. Guys, I'll talk to you next episode. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. I pray that each of you will take something from this episode, that you will be challenged, that you will be encouraged in your walk with God. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Leave a five-star rating and review so that other people can find this and other people can listen to the stories of God's redemption. I love you guys, and I'll talk to you next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.